That theme song will get stuck in your head, by the way. It's a good tune. Um, and if you're wondering, I'm letting my hair grow out for uh, our Halloween uh, celebration next week, and uh, you'll have to come back to see why uh, if you want to know that. Um, <laughs> crazy things we do. Um, some people have been making fun of me like, oh, your hair. Yeah, that's why I keep it shaved. Um, so last week we talked about how uh, God commanded us to love him. We kind of thought, you know, that seems kind of awkward that somebody would command us to love. I mean, can you really command someone to love? And we looked last week about how as important as it is, uh, who you love the most or what you love the most is what will define you in life. It's what, it is the most determining factor about your life. It will determine how you feel about yourself, how you see yourself, and what you do. And God's looking down at you and said, the most important thing you will ever do in your life is determine who it is you love most. I'm the one who loves you back the most. I'm the one who's never going to leave you nor forsake you. The only source of unconditional love you'll ever truly find in this world and in your life is me. And so that's why it's so important that you have a loving relationship with me. And so because it's so important, I mean, would it be fair for God just to say, I, I encourage you, I behoove you, it, you really ought to? Or with it being that important with that much at stake, would God just come down and say, do this for your own good? The best thing you could ever do is to love me. And which is why when I talk about what it means to have a relationship or to be saved or to be a Christian, I say this almost every week, uh, that this life is about nothing more than having a loving relationship with God that you'll enjoy for all eternity. Sometimes I get asked the question though, it's like, whoa, 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 whoa. I, I thought the Bible told us like the, you know, the nature of being a Christian is that we have faith in God or that we believe in God. After all, doesn't John 3.16, John 3.16 doesn't say anything about our love for God. It just talks about God's love for us. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, and whoever believes in him, not loves him, but believes in him, shall not perish but have everlasting life. And then it goes on, it says, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already, because they've not believed in the name of God, the one and only, only, one only son. Now, I thought it's a belief. So is it love or is it a belief? I mean, you can continue on this. What, how about Ephesians 2, 8? It, it, it says, therefore, it is by grace that you've been saved. Grace is God's love for you, his unmerited favor, his grace. Uh, that's what we think about amazing grace. It is by grace we've been saved through faith, not love. We've been saved by God's grace through faith. It doesn't say by love. Um, and this is not of yourself. It's a gift of God. It's not by works so that no one can boast. So which is it? Is it about loving God? Shouldn't we rework that statement to say this life's about nothing more than having faith in God? that you'll enjoy for all eternity. That didn't really make, you have to kind of rework the whole sentence. So are you just making this whole thing up? I mean, are you, where is this connection between love and faith? And which is more important? Is it about loving God or is it about having faith in God? One of the things that gets frustrating as a pastor is it seems like as if we often check our minds at the door when we come into church. Maybe it's because there's so much at stake. Maybe it's because we're so afraid of getting this eternally wrong that if I mess this up, it means I, I could spend an eternity apart from God. I could end up in, in hell if I get this wrong, right? I don't want to say that word too loud. It's almost a bad word, right? I, I, could end up, I could end up somewhere really bad and bad for all eternity if I get this wrong. So I better make sure I get this right. And so it's like as if we, we check our brains at the door and everything else we know and understand everywhere else, we can't seem to apply here. Let me remind you, everything that God has created in this world is all to point you and move you towards a loving relationship with him that you'll enjoy for all eternity. Every institution, every kind of relationship, it is all geared and centered around moving you to a loving relationship with him. Just keep that in mind. Which is why you don't learn things in the world and then check your brain at the door and try to figure something else when you come into church. 
Which is what brings me to Ace and Ginger. I know, an odd illustration to begin off a sermon. Uh, Casino, it's hard to find a clip in that movie that long without cuss words in it. Um, It's about a guy, Abe Rossine, who works for the mafia, builds a casino uh, out in the desert of Las Vegas, and he really loves this girl, Ginger. The question in the movie, though, is always, does Ginger love him? And it's centered around this issue of trust. And he looks at this, he says, you know, in my line of work, I've got to have somebody in my life that I can trust completely. Because at some point, I know everybody else in this world is going to betray me. And i got to have somebody that I can give the, literally the keys of my life to. That's what he did there in, in L.A. He gave him basically, it's his bailout money. It's his run, flee money. If he needs to run from the mafia, run from the cops, whoever he's got to run from, he's got to have something that can bail him out. And if it's in his name, somebody can take it. So he's got to find somebody in this world he can trust completely. And he chooses to trust Ginger. And the question of the movie is always, is she really worthy of that trust? Now, unfortunately, she's not. Spoiler alert. <laughs> if you didn't see that one coming. Uh, when it comes to our loving relationships, though, a relationship like marriage, we would never talk about marriage in terms of, well, do you love him or do you trust him? Which is more important in this relationship? Like you say you want to get married. Um, I just want to make sure you love him. I don't care if you trust him or not. I just want to make sure you love him. Would you ever say that? Or would you say, you know, it's really important that your relationship is built on trust. It doesn't matter whether or not you love each other. You just need to trust each other. That's what marriage is all about. Could you really separate the two? You can't. Uh, And when you talk about somebody that you have a loving relationship with, sort of inherent with that is trust. And oftentimes it's really funny about trust. Very rarely in marriage discussions do we talk about trust. Uh, Rarely do you look deep into someone's eyes on a romantic night before a sunset and say, I trust you. (laughs) Right? It it doesn't happen. However, those same two people will come into my office after there's been a relational trust broken and say, I just don't know if we can continue in marriage where there is no trust. Right? I mean, after all, without trust, do we even have a relationship? Is it a relationship built on trust? No, I thought it was all about love. I thought it was all about the sunset and the romance and the love. You, you, if I, as a counselor, came in and said, no, 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 you don't need to worry about the trust. It's all about the love. Just love them. That's okay. Love co- conquers everything, right? Doesn't love cover everything? You don't need trust. Just have love. They would go look for a different counselor, right? Because within our minds, we, in that moment, we know you cannot separate out love and trust. To love is to trust. And to trust is to love. And you don't have a relationship where there's no trust, but you also don't have a relationship where there's no love. And you can't really sort these things out and say, well, which is more important? Which one, you know, is of greater value? To some point, you'd say it's kind of the same thing. I mean, after all, is there anything more that makes you more vulnerable than to love? Isn't that inherent to the nature of love? When you love somebody, are you not making yourself vulnerable to them? That's why whenever two people want to get married and I do the pre-marriage counseling, I have them look at each other and say, listen, I love you very much. Repeat after me. I love you very much. It's going to be your honest marriage vows. Some of you all know what's coming. I love you very much, but what you have to know before we go any further is I'm a sinner. And because I'm a sinner... I will make you more miserable than anybody else in this world ever will. That's what your marriage values are. After all, you are saying, I'm committed to you for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health. I'm not going to take care of my body, so I'm going to get sick, and I'm going to make you have to take care of me. I'm not going to take care of our finances well, so we're going to be a lot broker than you think we are, and I'm going to do a lot of really bad things, which is why it's going to get a lot worse. That's what you're really saying, isn't it? And when you're getting into that kind of a relationship, 
Is there any relationship you'll ever get into that's making you more vulnerable than that? Are you not truly trusting somebody with your life when you get married to them in that sense? Yeah, you are. So you can't separate out this idea of love and trust. You can't separate out the idea between faith in God and love in God. They're one and the same, and you're going to see how closely these two things are intertwined. So much so that I started off on a path to talk about the, the whole way I, I kind of planned out this series. We, we talk about these series you know, long before, and sometimes you plan them out before you theologically know what you're talking about. Um, but what's really good is if you're on the right path, eventually you'll end up in the right place. And originally the, the message path was going to be, for, last week we talked about loving God, how important that is. And this week we're going to talk about how loving others is how we show our love to God. Makes sense, right? After all, Jesus says, what's the most important thing? He says, love God. Second commandment, just like it or it flows out of that or is right there with it. You can't almost separate these two. It's to love one another as you love yourself. That's kind of where I started. So I started down that path and I ended up over on this place, faith. How do you get there? Well, that's where you go over to uh, the book of James. Because James talks about this faith. And when you want to really understand what this faith is in God, James tries to explain it. Now, James purposely is sort of poking at their knowledge and understanding of what Paul has written. James and Paul knew each other. We see in Acts chapter 15, they were in the same room at the same time. They knew each other. James knew of the writings of Paul. He knew of Paul's theology. And he knew that Paul had, you know, had promoted this idea that we are saved by grace through faith. He understood that. He knows that. And so he purposely sort of pulls out something to sort of jar your mind when he says over in James chapter 2, um, what good is it if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? You believe there's one God. Well, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. So he's bringing out this idea is, you know, faith without works is dead. And over in uh, Ephesians, Paul's is saying, if you, uh, you don't get saved by works, you get saved by faith. So which is it? Is it saved by works or saved by faith? He's purposely sort of pulling this out. Um, uh, let, me, let me read the rest of that just so you'll, uh, I, dang it, I cut the whole context of it. Anyways, moving on. Sometimes what happens, I get the whole verse, and then just for notes time, I'll squeeze down. In James, he talks about how faith without works is dead. So he's bringing this idea out to sort of like spur your mind with this. Now, he says, you know, is it okay just to believe in God? And this is what a lot of people say, well, I believe in God, therefore I am saved. And he's pointing out the idea that it's not just about a mental assent to the reality of a deity. Like, do you acknowledge that there is a God? Yes. Okay, that means you're saved. No, no, not really at all. Uh, we're, not, we're not looking just for mental assent or a simple belief. He says demons have that same belief. As a matter of fact, if you notice, let me read this again and see if you can remember any verse from last week that James is purposely trying to poke at. He's talking to a Jewish audience who is well familiar with the Jewish scriptures and something that the Jewish, Jews would pray every single day. It's a little key. And we talked about this verse last week. He says, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds. Can that kind of faith really save someone? You believe that there is one God. Well, good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Anybody pick up on what verse he's talking about there? What he's hitting you? It's a little obscure. I can't blame you for not getting it. I never got it until I planned this message. The prayer that the Jews would pray every day was called the Shema. It began like this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. He says, you guys pray the Shema. The demons believe the same thing you guys, that, that was the core of their confessional faith. 
uh, the, comfort, the, the, the core of their confessional statement was there is one God. Now, to us, that doesn't make a lot of sense. I mean, okay, yeah, there's one God. We know there's one God. Most of the world's faiths all have one God. Judaism, Christianity, Islam, one God. We're, we, we are almost in a monotheistic culture nowadays. They weren't. Their culture was pantheistic. Uh, there was a sun god and the moon god. Uh, there was the god that gave us rain. There was the god who, who provided our, for our crops. Uh, we, we lifted up the, the god of, 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 of uh, agriculture with you know, the, the bulls, whatnot. They had all kinds of gods. And so for them, the core of their theological statement, what made them so unique amongst all other people, is they know there is one god. That was the core of their theological statement. Uh, now, what he's saying is, you can have the perfect right theology, but if you don't have the relational faith, what good is that? Demons have really good theology. They just don't have a relationship with God. They got great theology, as a matter of fact. They're pretty clear on who God is. They're pretty clear on the majesty of God, the power of God, the works of God, all that God has done. They know about the love of God. They just don't want a relationship with God. They hate God. So he says it's not just about having the same belief. Demons have that belief. They don't have a relationship. It comes down to the relationship. Well, no, doesn't it say faith, Steve? It says faith. It doesn't say relationship. You're putting words into the text that aren't there. Once again, what is the difference between your belief and a demon's belief? It's a relationship. How, where do we get that from? Well, um, the nature of faith is says with faith without action that follows it is dead. Wouldn't you say the same thing about love? Like, if you love someone, wouldn't you do something that would show that? I mean, didn't Janet Jackson ask it so perfectly? What have you done for me lately? Right? What have you done for me lately? You say you love me, but what have you done for me lately? What have you done to show this kind of love? You say that you love me, but you don't ever do anything to show love. It's like the old country guy says, well, I told you I love you. If I change my mind, I'll let you know. Well, I don't know because there's nothing in your life that reflects the idea that you actually love me. We, we inherently know the very nature of love is that love does. It moves you to action. And sometimes what happens is that we go back to the time when we were in love and like, you know, all the things you used to do for me, you don't do anymore. You don't bring me flowers anymore. See, I can hit every generation. Yeah, yeah, you don't sing me love songs. You young kids are like, it's okay. Get some Neil Diamond in you, right? And that's, that's the thing is like back when you were in love and you were dating and romantic, you used to do all of these loving things. And sometime along the way, oftentimes our love fades a little and we don't do the kind of loving things anymore. And people begin to wonder, I just don't know if they really love me. Why? Is it because they didn't say it? No, it's because there's, there's a lack of action there. Because we inherently know relational love moves you to action. And James is talking about faith in the very same way. He says relational faith moves you to action. Now, as a matter of fact, what kind of action does relational faith move you towards? Let's look a little bit further. Uh, James chapter 2, verse 15, the very next verse, he says, so, Well, suppose there was a brother or sister without clothes or daily food. And if one of you says to them, oh, go in peace, I hope, you're well, I hope you stay warm and find some clothes, I hope you're well fed, but they do nothing about their physical needs, what good is that? In the same way, faith by itself, that's not accompanied by action, is dead. Now, would you say that 
it was a loving thing to see somebody who was hungry and in need and cold and go, I'll pray for you, and then walk away. Was that loving? Or, hey, I really hope you find some food somewhere. Good luck with that. Does that come across as loving? No. You notice the very first thing he says about the nature of true faith is true faith moves you to be loving. You see the interconnection here? You can't say that you have faith in God, but not be moved with compassion and love. It means you really don't have faith. Because the nature of a faith relationship with God is that it's going to move you towards love. By the way, just about everything James says in the book of James, he's echoing stuff that you find over in the book of Matthew. Jesus said it this way. When the Son of Man comes in glory and all of his angels with him, and he sits on his glorious throne, this is Matthew 25, and all the nations are gathered before him. He will separate people one from another as a shepherd would separate sheep from goats. And he'll put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. And then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared since the creation of the world. Now, these are obviously people who have a relationship with God. And he's saying, we're going to enjoy this for all eternity. So come over here. We get to enjoy all this stuff for all eternity. So he's talking about people who have a relationship with him. And he says to them, For when I was hungry, you gave me something to eat. Same thing James was just talking about. Uh, when I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. When I was a stranger, you invited me in. When I needed clothes, you clothed me. When I was sick, you looked after me. When I was in prison, you came to visit me. Do you think maybe James is pulling on this story? What was his illustration? Suppose you were to find somebody who was hungry and needed clothes, but you did nothing for him. Is that really true faith? No, it's not. He, I think he's pulling up this story. I could be wrong. I really think he is. He says the righteous look back at him and say, when did we see you hungry, Jesus? When do we feed you? When do we see you thirsty and give you something to drink? When do we see you as a stranger invite you in or needing clothes and clothes you? We never saw you sick in prison and go visit you. And the king will reply, whatever you did for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. And then I'll say to those on the left, depart from me, you are cursed. Into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry. Wait, prepared for who? The devil and his demons? I mean these demons who have a faith in God but don't actually do anything about it? Huh, interesting. He says, you go over with them. And they say, well, why? He says, for when I was hungry, you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, you didn't invite me in. I needed clothes, you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, you did not look after me. And they'll also answer, when did we see you hungry, thirsty, a stranger, needing clothes, or sick and in prison, didn't help you? He says, truly, truly, whenever you did not do it for the least of these, you didn't do it for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Do you think James is bringing up this very same story? Jesus is saying, listen, when you do things for the least of these, you're doing it for me. Now, let's go back to what Jesus said. What's the most important commandment, Jesus? Love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Did the guy say, what's the top two commandments? No, he says, what's the most important commandment? What is the one most important commandment? And Jesus can't help but give two answers, right? Love God and love others. What he's saying is, you can't separate these two. You can't separate out these two and say, I love God, but I don't love others. Uh, John would say it this way in 1 John chapter 2. Uh, he says, whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. And in chapter 2 and in chapter 4, he goes this whole long thing about how you can't say that you have a loving relationship with God but not love other people. It, it means you really don't have a loving relationship with God, which is why Jesus, when he says, what's the most important thing? Love God. But let me, let me, let me let you know the thing. The way you show love God is by loving others because you really don't love God unless you love others. What's the nature of saving faith, James? Well, the nature of saving faith is that you not just believe that there is a God, not that you just recite the Shema, here is the Lord of God is one, 
but that you actually go on to the next part, which is Lord your God is one, and love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And what does it mean to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind? Love others. Did I talk too fast there? Let me, let me slow it down. Sometimes I get too fast, I get too excited. Jesus, what's the most important commandment? Love God. Wait, 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 wait. You can't separate that from also loving others. Hey, James, what's the nature of true faith? Well, it's not just about believing the first part of the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord God is one. You've got to go on to the second part of loving others because loving God is loving others. See how these things are all interconnected? You can't separate out and say, well, is it about having faith in God or is it about loving God? No, it's one and the same thing. So when I talk about, when I, when I was first trying to, was trying to come up with a, a short doctrinal statement of what it means to be a Christian, I, I debated long and hard. I went through a lot of, you know, trying to figure out, should, should we use the word love there or faith there? And I went with the word love. In part for a couple of things. After all, Paul talks about how these are intertwined, and now these three remain. You know, when, it boils, when you boil everything down, you have three things left, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. And love seems to sort of incorporate within it the context of a relationship where there's hope and trust, where you hope even when there is no reason to hope where you have faith uh, because of the nature of your relationship with this person, and, and it's all summarized up with what is love. And, and if I were just to say that this life is about nothing more than having faith in God, that may be a little misleading because we don't understand faith. We don't understand faith or love. Is it any wonder that devils corrupted all these things in our minds? It makes sense, wouldn't it? But to have a true loving relationship, we understand that the very core of what it means to have a loving relationship is that it's intertwined with our faith. You can't separate out the two. So, conclude that with this. Last week we talked about the most important thing about your life is whether or not you have a loving relationship with God. Whether or not you truly love God. So the question to ask ourselves is, do I love God? Do I really, really love God? Well, the way that you would know the answer to that question is, is, to what extent am I moved with compassion to actually show love to people just simply out of my relationship with God? There's nothing in it for me to be moved with compassion just to love someone. I was looking back over my notes, and the last time I preached on this passage out of Matthew 25 was in 2017. And it's a, it's a if you were there that Sunday, it changed the way that you view people on the side of the street asking for money. And you probably remember it. Uh, I started off and I showed a video about a guy who was conning people asking for money on the side of the road. Because let's face it, everybody on the side of the road is probably a con man anyway, right? That's what you think, right? I talked about how, okay, so what if the guy is conning you? Should you still give them anything? Good question, isn't it? I share with this simpler thing. I carry around with me in my car gift cards. I don't like giving out cash for the obvious reasons, but if somebody really is hungry, a gift card to a restaurant will get you, you know, a meal. And so I give them a gift card. Yeah, but what if they're abusing it? I came back and said this. Which would you rather have happen? You walk before God, you see him in heaven, and God looks down on you and says, ah, oh, I see you wasted $3,000 giving money in the form of gift cards to people who really didn't need it. Cursed are you for such a horrible management of money. Is that likely to happen? Or is God going to look down on you and say, you gave $3,000 away. Only about 40 bucks of that was to somebody who actually needed. The rest of them conned you. 
but you did that out of faithfulness for me. You did that because of your love for me. And I recognize the act of love, and you basically said, God, I'll trust you'll deal with the guy who's conning me, but deal with me accordingly to the fact that I did this out of my love for you. It changes your way to think about it, doesn't it? I want in that moment for God to say, when they were hungry, you did it for me. Because is there really any other reason why you would do it? No. And why is the least of these such an important ministry? Because these are the people who do nothing for you. You can get nothing in return. I can do a lot of loving things. You know, I went over and, and helped out Mike Harvey at his house. Yes, I'm bragging about it, so I lose my heavenly reward. That's exactly why I'm sharing it. Um, I did it out of love for Mike, and I did it out of my love for God. But you know, there is something in it for me too, if you really boil things down. I could be doing it for a selfish reason, because the sooner Mike Harvey is back to full status, the better we all are, right? Our overall ministry here at the church relies heavily on a guy who is so sold out and so on fire for God, who motivates and moves people to make the changes they need to make in their life to get right with God through Celebrate Recovery. I vitally need him as a part of overall ministry. And although in my heart of hearts, I don't believe I went over there for a selfish reason at all. I could have. Some of you could say, well, you never came over and helped me redo my bathroom. You're right, because I don't have as much vested interest in it, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> you see, even the good things we do that we think we're doing out of sheer love, there often can be a selfish motive to it somewhere deep inside that's hidden. That's my point. When you do something for someone who is truly the least of these, God looks down and says, I know the only reason why you did that was because of your relationship with me. That's gold. That's gold. That's the sure sign and evidence of a loving relationship with Jesus Christ that you'll enjoy for all eternity. And that's why he says, you know, that's really the, the delineating line between those who really loved me and those who really didn't. It's the ones who actually loved the least of these, where you really got nothing in return for it. Your reward is great not because you did something for them, but what you did for them was just simply an evidence of the fact that you truly had a loving relationship with him. Because it's really hard. That's why the separation is so hard. We think sheep and goats, what, you can't tell the difference between a sheep and a goat? Come on. How hard is that? It can be kind of hard, actually. They're all graze out in the same pasture, and they do look very similar. But the shepherd does have to go through and separate them out. In the same way, there's a lot of people who are in church who have the right theology, say the right things. They have an intellectual belief in God. They say they love God, but I think it's the same way they love pizza. But there's no real relationship there between them and God. And the evidence is in how they live their life and what they actually do. And the truest evidence of that is, is what you do for the least of these. So do you love God or you just say you love God? And in what ways has your love for God moved you with compassion towards those you otherwise would have no compassion for? Let's close in prayer. Father, I thank you for your grace that even when we fall short in such a crucial thing as loving you, you don't give up on us, you don't move on from us, 
you just continually to beg us and call us and move us and inspire us with your love for us. After all, Lord, this is how we know what love is, by the way that you loved us. For there was nothing in it for you when you died for us on the cross. It was purely a sacrificial act for us. Help us understand, Lord, each and every one of us are truly the least of these spiritually when we come before you. There's nothing about us that is worthy or worth you dying for us, but you did it anyway. And may our love, Father, move us to compassion, to love in that same way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.